God's Word Community Church welcomes you to six weeks of Easter, the journey to the cross and beyond, recorded in detail by the Apostle John in his Gospel. Jesus, the Messiah, brings you something found in no other religion in the world, real evidence of life after death, facts of the real God's work in space and time to give you real hope and a future. Join us through the death and the resurrection written by someone who is there. Rejoice, for he is alive. Good morning. Happy Easter. And I'm aware that... um, This morning as we share this message that we actually have friends and brothers and sisters that are not with us who are going to be listening about Easter. I am uh, grateful for those who have begun listening to our messages uh, from China, from Muslims for Christ. I'm not sure how you found out that we are here, but I am grateful that you are listening to the gospel This is Easter morning in 2015. One of the things that's a special burden on my heart is that I don't want Christians to move to Easter without remembering Good Friday. One of the things I notice when I visit restaurants and so on is that Good Friday seems to be one of those days that everybody forgets. And that surprises me because it's probably the second most important day for the human race in all of history. That is the day when Jesus died for us. And so this weekend has not one really critically important day in it, but two. And when we think about the resurrection, I think it's important for us to remember the resurrection from what? Where did this journey begin? This weekend began with great darkness betrayal from a friend, evil taking control, false trials, terrible beatings, cowardice from the governor, and finally the crucifixion. Darkness has come hard to those who believe in Jesus. Now, before we turn to John 20, which is our text for today, I want to spend a moment to carry us back into Good Friday with a poem. This poem was written by John Jefferson, pastor of Del Air Baptist Church in Hawthorne, California. And I hope you will forgive me as I try to use Pastor Jefferson's voice a little bit as I share this with you because I believe the culture of this poem is also part of the message and the way the Holy Spirit speaks to us about this day. Pastor Jefferson wrote this. It's Friday. Jesus is praying. Peter's sleeping. Judas is betraying. But Sunday's coming. It's Friday. Pilate's struggling, the council is conspiring, the crowd is vilifying. They don't even know that Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The disciples are running like sheep without a shepherd. Mary's crying, Peter's denying, but they don't know that Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The Romans beat my Jesus. They robe him in scarlet. They crown him with thorns. They don't know that Sunday's coming. It's Friday. See Jesus walking to Calvary, his blood dripping, his body stumbling, and his spirits burdened. But you see, it's only Friday. Sunday's coming. It's Friday, the world's winning, people are sinning, and evil's grinning. It's Friday, 
The soldiers nail my Savior's hands to the cross. They nail my Savior's feet to the cross. And then they raise him up next to criminals. It's Friday. But let me tell you something. Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The disciples are questioning what has happened to their king. And the Pharisees are celebrating that their scheming has been achieved. But they don't know that it's only Friday and Sunday is coming. It's Friday. He's hanging on the cross, feeling forsaken by his father, left alone and dying. Can nobody save him? It's Friday. But Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The earth trembles. The sky grows dark. My king yields his spirit. It's Friday. Hope is lost, death has won, sin has conquered, and Satan's just a-laughing. It's Friday. Jesus is buried. Soldiers stand guard. And a rock is rolled into place. But it's Friday. It's only Friday. Sunday. Is coming. I thank my brother John Jefferson for that message. And we start with John chapter 20 with no further introduction. On the first day of the week, By their calendar, that's Sunday, not Monday. Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. All three other Gospels mention that there was a group of women here. But John zeroes in on Mary Magdalene because there's a story around her that John wants to tell. When she gets there to finish the burial preparations for Jesus with the other women, the stone is already rolled away. Pilate's seal is already broken. The soldiers are already gone. Josh McDowell famous Christian author of Evidence That Demands a Verdict, approached this question while he was an atheist. And he struggled over the question, who rolled away this stone? And do you know that as he labored and labored and labored as an atheist to answer that question, the only answer that made sense to him was the answer in the Gospels. And he was a converted. And he began writing about evidence that he believed demanded a verdict. Mary Magdalene gets there. The stone is rolled away from the tomb. So she runs. And she went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. The disciples are in hiding. They've been in hiding since the Garden of Gethsemane. Peter and John are the only ones that we see in the crucifixion story after Gethsemane. Peter, we see only until he denies his Lord three times, and then he vanishes into the darkness. John refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. The verb here is phileo. There was a friendship, a resonance between John and Jesus, so much so that as Jesus hung dying, he had entrusted his very mother to John's care from then on. He said to John, Behold your mother. And to his mother he said, Behold your son. 
So Mary Magdalene runs to Simon Peter, runs to John, and said to them, they (laughs) have taken the Lord. They. We use the word they all the time. They, you know, it's they do this, they do that. They are extremely powerful in our world, aren't they? They can't believe what they have done. I assume she's talking about the religious leaders or perhaps the Romans. But they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid them. One thing I feel like is important to remind Christians is that the empty tomb was not enough to persuade most of the believers that were there at the time. Mary does not run to them rejoicing, obviously my Savior has been raised. She comes back and says, they've stolen the body. Why would they do such a thing? I'm sure she's feeling a sense of shock right now. I want you to notice that sometimes when we don't believe God's word, we experience shock, grief, and depression instead of joy. (laughs) If she had believed what Jesus said, she would be already beginning to experience anticipation and joy. But the situation was so dark that her faith has not yet been stirred, and she's disturbed. So Peter went out with the other disciples, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Do you know that it's on this verse that everybody assumes that the Apostle John was one of the youngest of all the disciples because he was the faster runner? I don't know if you know that. Sometimes it's important when you deal with the Bible to understand how much some people try to beat, build, on things that are too thin to support that weight. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. Could have been a 50-year-old marathoner for all I know. But that's the long tradition. John gets there first. It says, and stooping to look in, he peeks into the tomb from the outside. And most of these tombs that are carved into caves have got entrances that are only about three feet high. And so to look into the tomb, John's going to have to crouch way down to see what's inside. Peter, of course, being the delicate fellow we all know, follows John, and he goes directly into the tomb while John is peeking in. And he sees the linen cloths lying there. Now, You'd be surprised how much energy has been spent by scholars trying to understand what the cloth's lying there. Does this mean that the body just raised through the cloths and left them and they deflated, kind of like we saw in the movie, The Passion of the Christ, the other night? Or does this mean that they were actually folded up and put in a place? We really don't have enough information to know. But we do read this here and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. I see this is intriguing. Because if somebody is going to steal the body, why are they going to leave the cloths? Why would a robber leave something neatly folded on the shelf? If I were handling a body that had been treated like Jesus' body had been treated, I would have left the cloth on it. Just saying. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. Only John appears to have looked at the evidence of the empty tomb and these cloths and immediately began to understand what had happened. And I'm curious about this. I'm curious when he sees that cloth neatly folded on the side, is there something about it that reminds him of what Jesus would do? You know, does Jesus wash his face in the morning 
and then when he's done washing his face, fold the cloth a particular way and put it aside. What is there about the way this face cloth is set aside that John picks up on and the arrangement of things in the tomb that out of all the disciples, we've got 11 apostles left and we have the women and whomever else has followed the group around and we don't know of anybody else that may have been persuaded by the empty tomb. And you notice that John comments about this. He says, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. And then the disciples went back to their homes. That's interesting, isn't it? They obviously don't feel empowered to start some sort of investigation to try to locate the body, to try to locate Jesus. We, in fact, will find out that they go back behind locked doors because these are frightened men. And here we see in the Gospel of John, the camera zooms in on Mary Magdalene. And I have to tell you that I love this. In the Gospel of Luke chapter 8, we find out that Mary Magdalene is early on described as a woman from whom Jesus has driven out seven demons. We also believe that it was Mary Magdalene who was caught in adultery that Jesus frees from the religious leaders in John 8. We are at least clear that the woman who poured the ointment on Jesus' feet and wiped them with her hair, in the other Gospels, she's described as a woman who has lived a lifestyle known publicly as being immoral. And of course, in John's Gospel, we find out it's Mary herself. It is a powerful thing to me that we started this journey toward the cross in John 11, where Lazarus, her brother, was raised from the dead. And to me, there's a kind of perfection in that it was Jesus' resurrection of Lazarus that finalized the religious leader's commitment to kill him. And so here now, at the opposite end of that road, here is Mary once again. And it seems so appropriate. Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. I can't imagine what kind of shock she must be feeling. She's grieving. Only the third day after the crucifixion. She stooped to look into the tomb and she saw Two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. Some of the commentators that I saw made some beautiful observations about the positions of these angels. One noticed, isn't it interesting, that for a thousand years, the Ark of the Covenant was the center of Israelite worship with Two cherubim molded on the ends of the lid and the center of the lid being where the blood was placed to forgive the nations. And here in this tomb, we see those angels positioned on the end and in between the blood of the Lamb that had forgiven us. Isn't that amazing? What a wonderful comparison. And then another commentator noticed, isn't it interesting that Jesus, who was raised up, to be killed between two thieves is resurrected between two angels. It's a beautiful image. She looks in, she sees two angels, and they say to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Now, I want you to understand that this word for weeping is not a quiet sob that could be happening in the corner of your room that if someone weren't paying attention to you, they may not notice it. It's not that kind of crying. The word for this kind of crying is the kind of crying that is used for the Jewish wailers outside of a funeral. Mary can't control herself. She is crying loudly. And 
one of the things I want to remind you of this Easter is because even though we know that God has given us forgiveness of our sins and the promise of the resurrection of the dead from Jesus' own resurrection, it may be that you're struggling with issues in your life that cause you grief. And I think it's important to remember that God notices when you cry. And He cares about when you cry. And His angels are here asking her, why are you crying? God knows. God sees you. And God cares. They have taken away my Lord. And I don't know where they've laid him. Mary doesn't jump to a conclusion about a resurrection. I cannot tell you how many people in my own lifetime have said to me, you know, Mark, back then people just weren't very scientific. They just weren't meticulous about their need for proof like we are now. They were more gullible. They were more easily fooled into ideas of religion. And I want to say to them, you know, you really need to read a history book. Because certainly by the time we get this far, most of the Romans didn't believe their own religion anymore. You can see the practical atheism in Pilate. Jesus tells him, I came here to testify to the truth. And Pilate very cynically says, Cal, what's that? What is truth? This is not a gullible culture. And Mary Magdalene is not jumping to the conclusion that her Savior was raised because she's a superstitious woman. She's looking for a body. She's looking for a dead body that she began burial preparations with on Friday night and didn't have time to complete them because the Sabbath intervened. And she and the other women want to finish providing the respect for Jesus' body that they feel like he deserves. And they're desperate. They want to be able to express their love and respect and care for him in this way. Why would they take his body? Having said this, she turned around She turns away. She doesn't even try to continue talking with the two figures in the tomb. She turned around and she saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus, like the angels, say to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Once again, God knows. Those times that you cry and you feel alone, you are not alone. God sees it. What are you looking for? (laughs) What are you seeking? I love it when Jesus in the Gospels goes questioning for the obvious. I love that. Like when Bartimaeus on the edge of Jericho, when Jesus comes into town, runs up to him and yells, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus looks at the blind man standing in front of him and says, what do you want me to do for you? Well, Lord, one thing it occurred to me, I'd kind of like to see. (laughs) And Jesus heals him. What are you looking for outside the the tomb of Jesus of Nazareth? What are you looking for? And supposing him to be the gardener, I guess that's not too much of a demotion. He created all the plants on the earth to start with, right? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said, Sir, if you are the one who has carried him away. Tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And I think every single one of us that have ever read this story before have been struck by this moment, this next verse, when it says, Jesus said to her, Mary, It's amazing. 
And she turned and she said to him in Aramaic, Jesus' language, Rabboni, which means teacher. She heard him say her name. It is in this book, John chapter 10, that Jesus defines pastoring first, that a shepherd knows his sheep and his sheep know him. He tends them, he heals them when they are sick, he is present to care for them. Whenever I get the opportunity to teach about church leadership, I don't start with 1 Timothy chapter 3. I don't start with Titus chapter 2. I start with John chapter 10. The good shepherd knows his sheep and would give his life for his sheep, and the sheep know him, and they will not follow a stranger. There's some educations I feel like need to happen to pastors all over the country. Mary, he speaks her name and she knows him. Very interesting. And in the end of Luke, when he's meeting with the two brothers that he talked with along the road, and they don't recognize him until he offers the supper in front of them and blesses the bread and blesses the cup, and then suddenly it's like, bang, now I see you. Now I know you. And the Bible doesn't tell us that Mary flung herself forward in an attempt to tackle him right where he stood. But clearly by verse 17, that is what has happened. <laughs> Mary has thrown herself forward and wrapped herself around him. And Jesus says, Mary, don't cling. Don't cling to me. I've not yet ascended. Now, there are so many different ways that folks have tried to understand this. I really believe that what's going on here is that Mary doesn't want Jesus to pop away somewhere where she doesn't know where he is. She's like, you know, wherever you're going to pop away, you're going to have to carry me. I'm Lois Lane. You're Superman. If you're flying, I'm hanging. You understand? And the good news is that according to 1 Corinthians 15 and Acts chapter 1, we find out that Jesus is going to dawdle with his disciples for seven weeks. That's pretty amazing. That's quite a detailed experience of proof about a resurrection from the dead. And that's when I want to remind you that the foundation of the gospel was not the empty tomb. The foundation of the gospel was that every single one of these Christians had so many repetitive experiences of the risen Lord that they built their testimony of the gospel on it. And we get some amazing conversions. Jesus' own unbelieving half-brother is converted. Do you have any idea what it would take to convert my brother that I'm the son of God? You know, to me, the conversion of Jesus' brother is an amazing, amazing, amazing thing. And so I don't tell people you ought to believe this because it's in the Bible. I say to people... Do you know that his own half-brother who grew up in a house with him became convinced that he was the son of God? Would that ever happen to you? Because <laughs> it wouldn't happen to me. I accidentally hit my little brother once in the face with a golf club. Did you know that? No, really, it was an accident. I'm not kidding. I'm just no good at golf. There was this little plastic wiffle golf ball, and I. This kids are playing with this metal golf club and real honest to goodness one and so i decide i pick it up and i'm going to swing it my brother's six years younger than me i'm like 14 or something and he's like eight and he does something you should never do when you have an ignorant older brother deciding to take his first golf swing 
He comes around my left side to peek and see where my club is going to make contact with that ball. Well, I gave it all my ignorant strength as hard as I could swing, and as I brought that golf club around, I caught my little brother right on the left side of his face and laid him out right on the ground. He had a black mark on his face that didn't go away for six months. And you know what? I was not able to heal it. My brother would never believe I was the son of God. And then you've got somebody like the Apostle Paul, who was a religious diehard, absolutely committed against everything that Christianity was, who becomes converted. Why? Because the risen Lord confronts him in a flash of light that blows him right off his mule and changes his life forever so that he becomes the most effective missionary there has ever been. I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And when you read the other Gospels, you find out that none of the disciples believed her. All of the women ran back to the disciples, locked behind closed doors. We've seen him. He's risen from the dead. And like, gee, I wonder what happened. I just told you what happened. He's risen from the dead. What do you think about these women? (laughs) On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. See, another testimony that I see of what Jesus has done is that these guys are not your fearless world changers. They went behind closed doors Friday night. They're still there. I don't know if they've even gone to the convenience store to buy a carton of milk. They're still in here. The women have come and let them know they've seen the Lord. They're still behind locked doors. I want you to notice that Jesus comes in when the doors are locked. You know, this body that God is going to give you It's going to be a whole lot of fun. Revelation 21 says there's no more sickness or pain. And I have to tell you that in the experience of getting older, one of the ways you could describe the experience of getting older is continuously discovering new ways to experience pain that you've never experienced it before. Wow, I've never felt that hurt before. Worked yesterday, you know. There's going to be no more of that. No more sickness, no more pain. He seems to be able to go from the town where the two disciples are in the book of Luke instantly to Jerusalem. That's fast travel. And he moves through locked doors. But he can be hugged, and we have at least two incidences of him eating. So it's not like he's just a ghost. This sounds like a really fun body, and I'm looking forward to it. The first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace. Peace be with you. Wow. Has anybody ever said peace? that offered a foundation for it like Jesus did. I was dead, but now I'm alive. I've talked to you about the living God and an eternal life that you can have with Him. And here I am, risen again, giving you in space, in time, proof that what I've said to you about God and life after death is all true. And... That strange thing that modern people don't believe in called the forgiveness of sins. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad, finally. Then they were glad. Getting the testimony of the women wasn't enough, the empty tomb wasn't enough, but they see him and they were glad. And Jesus said to them once again, peace be with you. Now, right here he's going to tell them four things. 
And one of the interesting things is all four of these things apply to us just like it applied to them. First, peace be with you. And I want you to notice that this peace that he gives is not a result of the fact that he's going to come in and magically change your external circumstances. Every single one of these disciples has got a tough road in front of them. But they can walk that tough road with peace because they know that Jesus is there with them. Jesus isn't sending them on that road alone. Second, as the Father sent me, so send I you. That's not a mission statement just for the apostles. It's not a mission statement just for missionaries. It's not a mission statement for pastors. It is the definition of our lives. When Jesus says in Matthew 28, as you go along your way, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and lo, I'll be with you always. He says to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And you and I need to do that. There have been a number of places in the Scriptures where God tells us He will meet us. He will be with us. In the beginning of Psalm 22, He talks about He inhabits the praises of His people. We know from the Scriptures that the Bible is the whole connected to the Holy Spirit. It's called the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We have read, we have sung, that the prayers of the saints come up before God like incense. He has taught us that our fellowship is a location into which He likes to come, where two or three are gathered in My name. There I am in your midst, in the between of you. Matthew chapter 25, when He talks about ministering to the poor, He says, inasmuch as you've done it for the least of these, you've also done, you remember, for Me. In all these places, God has promised to meet us. And as I've often said, we hold the Holy Spirit in leaky buckets. And we need to refill. We're finite. We can't hold Him infinitely. Receive the Holy Spirit. You can't read this without thinking of Ezekiel 37 and the Valley of Dry Bones, where God blows out across those skeletons. And they are knit back together and covered with flesh and filled with life. Friends, that's what my life is like depending on whether I am in the Spirit and drinking of the Spirit of God or whether I'm not. When I'm not living in the Spirit, drinking of the Spirit of God, I'm like scattered bones, dead and stinking in a field. God's Spirit in my life knits me back together, covers me back up, fills me, and gives me life that's truly life. And so we need to pursue staying full with Him. And finally, a statement that looks like it gives us more power than it does. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. As powerful as this is, there is a thing that happens when you and I speak to somebody about the Lord. When you share with someone about Jesus Christ, they will either be attracted by the words that you have said to them or they will be pressed further away. And as much as we want to see them draw close, the fact of the matter is both of those things are the work of the Spirit, the work of the Word of God. You can look in Isaiah 6. You can look in other places where God has said when that Word goes forth, sometimes eyes are blinded. Sometimes ears are bound up and deafened. Sometimes the speaking of the word actually pushes someone further away, and you and I actually have become part of that because we receive his gospel. When we share it, it'll have one of two effects. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin. It's very interesting. The other three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the only time you see the name Thomas is when you see the list of all twelve names. John tells us about this special guy four different times in his gospel. We meet Thomas four times in the gospel of John. And here he sounds, you know, I want to take people when they say, oh, folks back then were just gullible. That's why they believe this stuff. They were inherently superstitious. 
I want to say, you know what? I can hear you speculating, but you really should look at the material because that's not what's there. Thomas has got 10 friends that he's been hanging with for three and a half years who are in his face saying Jesus is alive. We have seen him. We have touched him. The women are there. We saw him first. We told these guys. And Thomas is like, I ain't believing any of this. I tell you, some of the stories that I've heard for how the apostles came to faith are funny. This all happened because of mass hypnosis, as if anybody had ever heard of such a thing. There's never been any demonstration of shared dreams or mass hypnosis or anything like that. We've got a community of a pile of people standing in front of this guy And even though he knows them and he has been with them and he loves them, he's not believing anything coming out of their mouths. He's as cynical as anybody I ever met. He was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. And he said, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and I can put my hand into his side, I will never believe. Wow, that's simple, and that's committed and clear. Thomas said, "Uh uh-uh. And it's this passage, of course, right here that's given Thomas his most famous nickname, Doubting Thomas. If it had just been that trip down south in John 11, maybe we would have nicknamed him Eeyore. But the name that stuck was the one that came from here. Eight days later... His disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them this time. And although the doors were locked, they seem to have taken a fond interest in locking their doors. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then the teacher looks out that one kid in class and says, You, here, front and center. Ever had that experience? No, y'all were all the cool kids in the front of the class that brought an apple in the beginning of the day, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah, GWCC, the G stands for goody two-shoes. Community church. Right. I can't imagine what Thomas must have thought when the teacher shows up and says, peace be with you, and then he looks at him like he must have looked at Peter that night that Peter denied him, looks at him and says, you, I heard what you said. It's important for us to remember this. You say nasty, awful things to your spouse behind closed doors. Someday God is going to say to you, I heard what you said. If you put down your children and tell them you're never going to amount to anything, someday you're going to stand in front of Jesus Christ and he's going to say, I heard what you said. You tear apart a friend, slander your neighbor, your brother, sister in Christ. Jesus teaches we're going to have to give an account for every idle word. And believe me, when you talk as much as I do, That's a warning that weighs heavy on my shoulders. (laughs) And all God's people saying, yeah, people talking to me now. All right. Jesus came and stood and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve. Do not be apistos, unbelieving, unfaithful. If I were to spell that in English, I would spell it A-P-I-S-T-O-S. A-P-I-S-T-O-S. Apistos. 
And the funny thing about the Gospel of John is that this word appears somewhat frequently in the other Gospels, and it appears somewhat frequently in the writings of Paul, but it only appears here in the Gospel of John. It never appears anywhere else in this Gospel. And it's when Jesus says to Thomas, don't be like an unbeliever, Thomas. Don't be like that. Don't be like the faithless. If you have to put your hands in the nail marks in my hand, if you have to put your hand in the wound in my side, come here and do it and quit acting like an unbeliever. And Thomas, I don't even know if he touched him. It doesn't say he did. Maybe he did. Thomas says, my Lord and my God. Now that's how we have it from the New Testament Greek into our American English. But as a Jew, what Thomas may have said is Yahweh Elohim or Adonai Elohim. This is a recognition of Jesus as God, 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 Creator, Almighty, Yahweh Tzabaoth, El Shaddai. And I've also had people try to persuade me over and over again that Jesus never claimed he was God. And that's when I want to say, you know, you really got to read it. Because when he was arguing with the Pharisees after he rescued the woman caught in adultery, they say, Abraham, our forefather, lived way before you did. Who do you think you are? Jesus says, I tell you, before Abraham was born, ego me, I am. And in Mark chapter 15, when he's standing under trial in front of the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, however much of the council they convened at that secret trial at night, the priest says to him, tell us clearly, are you the son of the blessed one? And he says, ego emi, I am. The day will come you will see the Son of Man in the clouds coming in glory. And at that moment, they quit bringing in any more false witnesses. They said, why do we need anything else? We've heard the blasphemy. Thomas comes here and says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says to him, not. No, you're you're taking it too far, Thomas. He doesn't say that. He says, now you believe. And I want to remind you that every single time in Scripture, somebody goes a little nuts and tells an angel or an apostle, gives them some kind of divine praise, an angel or an apostle will always say, no, 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 no. Don't say that about me. A man will say, I'm a human being just like you. That's what Paul and Barnabas had to say when the people, the the pagans in the city of Asia Minor, decided they were Hermes and Zeus and it was time to bring out offerings. Paul and Barnabas tore their robes and said, don't do that. Or in the book of Revelation, when John himself falls down before what the Bible calls the mighty angel who was delivering the message to him, and the angel refuses it. says, I am just a servant like you. Don't do that. Jesus does not turn Thomas's praise away. When Thomas calls him Yahweh Elohim, Jesus says, now you believe. Now you believe. Have you believed now because you have seen me? I tell you, more blessed are those who never get to do that, who have not seen and yet believe. And that's you and me who have been persuaded of the testimony of Christ. And then, before his last chapter, John does something more clearly than any other gospel, and that is to write to us exactly 
why he's writing to us. He says, now Jesus did many other signs. Signs normally refer to miraculous things. He did many other signs in the presence of his disciples. Luke summarizes it in Acts 1 by saying many convincing proofs. Paul says similarly in 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. So one of the things John is giving us a heads up about is that what he has recorded has been selective. There was a lot of history here he could have given us. But he decided not to write us an 800-page novel, War and Peace, you know. He decides instead to focus on what we would call a gospel. The gospel is not a biography. We don't find out, you know, every single move he made. We don't find out what happened between age 0 and age 12 and then age 12 to age 30. We don't find out all that stuff. They wrote so that you may believe, verse 31, that Jesus is the Christ. I've recorded these things for you. The conversion of the wine at Canaan, Galilee. His message to the Samaritan woman at the well. His bread of life sermon that nobody else wanted to listen to in John 6. The rescue of the woman caught in adultery. John 8. The healing of a man who was born blind in John 9. Resurrection of Lazarus from the dead in John 11. And then these appearances after the grave. I've written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's why I've told you this. And so the question when we hear the gospel is this one always, are you ready to depend on the testimony that Jesus raised from the dead, appeared to his disciples, and made himself known. An old apostle writing a very long time ago wanted you to have that choice. The choice to say to Jesus, like Thomas, my Lord and my God, and then to receive his commission. Peace, being sent, receiving the Holy Spirit, and knowing that the words we speak to them can result in his forgiveness. We are his instruments. Instruments of the resurrection. Pray with me. Lord in heaven, thank you so much, so much. Words fail us. We're finite and fallen human beings, and the words that come out of our mouth can't express everything that need to be said. Thank you. Thank you for the Passover lamb. Thank you for the way, the truth, and the life. Thank you for Yahweh Elohim walking among us. Lord, be with us. Strengthen us in our faith that we may serve you in the way that you have called us to make you glad. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.